Hi, it's John here and we're back in the wilderness. This time we're going to look at Exodus chapter 33. As you may have gathered by now, when I was at college in the 1970s, I specialised in Old Testament. And one of the things that we spent a lot of time on in our Old Testament lectures was asking the big question, what is the one big theme, the one overarching motif which makes sense of the whole of the Old Testament? And if you get that, you get the Old Testament, you can understand it. And so we had to study a scholar named Eichrod who said, the Old Testament is all about covenant. It's the story of God and the people forming covenants and the people often breaking them and God remaking them and so on. If you get covenant, you get the Old Testament. And just as we thought we had got it, we then moved on to uh, a guy called Von Rad, who said, no, it isn't covenant at all. It's Heilsgeschichte. That's a German word that means salvation history. The Old Testament is the story of God acting in power for his people. And, and yes, covenant was one of the things that he did, but uh, there is a lot more. So Heilsgeschichte is really where it's at. If you get that, you understand the whole of the Old Testament. Then we met a Swedish scholar called Mowinkle who said, no, it's not really covenant, it's not really Heilsgeschichte, it's myth and ritual. The Old Testament is the story of the nation worshipping God and in engaging in ritual with God because of the myths, the stories that they believed about him. And and so the, uh, the debate went on and uh, it was quite refreshing for me some years later, having written all the right essays and passed my exams, to discover another book on Old Testament theology, which I think... Uh, really rings true for me and also very helpful in my other specialism which is worship and liturgy so i want to introduce you whether you like it or not to an american scholar called samuel terrien who wrote a book called the elusive presence and what terrien is saying is that yeah, there's a bit of covenant in the Old Testament and there's a bit of Heilsgeschichte and there's some myth and ritual. But the bottom line really is none of those things. It's the presence of God. The Old Testament is the unique story of a God present with his people. And that's the theme which is explored in Exodus 33. And in fact, that's the chapter that Terriam begins his work. We had a little hint of this in a comment that we may have missed, although I think I drew slight attention to it last week. 32-34, my angel will go before you and in the context of verse th uh, of chapter 32 that that probably sounds like a very positive thing 
uh, we're going to see in this chapter that actually that's a threat. Now Terriem begins with, with this question. If you lived in the ancient Near East, you had loads of choice over who you worshipped. Uh, a bit like Britain today in our multi-faith society. So you could worship some Babylonian gods like Bel or Nebo or others. You could you could worship Canaanite gods, um, many different Baals who kind of worked on a, a parish system depending on where you lived. Uh, you could worship Astarte, or of course you could worship Yahweh. So it really was a multi-faith society, and, and so the kids in schools were encouraged to sacrifice babies to Marduk and take part in Baal fertility cults, and they weren't allowed to say Yahweh is Lord, although they did have to have a daily act of corporate sacrifice that was broadly Yahwistic, even if it was led by an agnostic Dagonist. So the big question which Terrian asks is this, where are they all today? What has happened to all those other gods? Why is there no first community church of Astarte? Why will you search in vain for St Nebo's Cathedral? And, in contrast, why did the worship of Yahweh endure through Israelite religion into Judaism and now into Christianity, with a third of the population of the globe uh, in some way connected to that religion? What happened to the others? Why has Yahweh endured? Now, one answer, of course, is that Yahweh is the true God and others weren't. But that, that's uh, far too simplistic for a theologian like Terrion. He says, actually, the big difference between Yahweh and any other of these gods lay in the fact that every other system of worship had a God who was out there, who was over there, who was up there whereas the Israelites worshipped a God who was present with them, God among them. And this, says Terrien, is the big overarching theme in Old Testament theology. Forget covenant, forget Heilsgeschichte. It's the story of the presence of God among his people, how that works out, and also, at times, it's coming and going. And he begins, as I said, in this story in Exodus 33. They've just done the golden calf thing. They've had uh, the punishment as a result of that. And now it's time to put that behind you and set off. But... And it becomes clearer in this chapter. God says to Moses, off you go, but I'm not going with you. I will send you my angel, but I'm not going to go with you. And that, to both Moses and to the people, is the most devastating news it's possible to have. They are going to lose the presence of God among them and so 
in verse 4 the people mourn and in verse 15 and 16 Moses takes it even further and basically says this this is my paraphrase of the text if you won't go with us we're not going an angel I'm sorry is just not good enough we need your presence and we would rather be here in the desert with your presence than in the promised land without it with, with merely an angel and Moses expands on that like this he says otherwise how will we be any different from any other nation all the other nations have got gods who are not present with them. Our big distinctive thing, O oh Lord, is your presence. If we lose that, we're just going to be like any other timper old nation. How is anyone going to know that you're pleased with us? How is anyone going to know that you have chosen us as your people? And that theme of the presence of God among his people, says Terrian, is one you can trace through the Old Testament. And I'll leave you to do that. But let me give you just one more example. The book of Ezekiel. And in chapter 10, the glory of God, the presence of God, leaves the temple. And Ezekiel watches it go as the nation goes off into exile but then in a vision in chapter 43 he sees restoration as the glory of God returns to the city and the very last book of Ezekiel uh, very last verse of Ezekiel 48 35 the name of the city will be the Lord is there presence lost and restored and of course in the new testament jesus as he comes as god to earth to be present among humans is to be named according to matthew 123 emmanuel god with us now terrian calls his book the elusive presence you can't of course contain god uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 2 verse 6 the heavens even the highest heavens cannot contain God certainly not any building that we put up for him but Moses senses the importance of this presence and so he cries out to God again for the people until again God relents verse 14 okay my presence will go with you and then just to prove it just to make sure Moses asks for a sight of God's glory uh, a request which is granted to him now given that Old Testament background it seems to me there's loads of implications for the church today there's a whole new slant on resurrection and Pentecost the apostles had known the presence of Jesus physically with them but had spent those three days 
without that presence and, and that was devastating for him but then he returns to them in the resurrection and after he has ascended the spirit comes as God not just present with the people but living in the people and that gift of the Holy Spirit makes real once and for all all this great Old Testament theology as the experience of the presence of God is available to all his people and uh, theologian called Gordon Fee wrote a commentary on 1 Corinthians which he calls God's empowering presence and he says that the church is first and foremost whatever it else it is first and foremost it's the community of people indwelt by the Holy Spirit why then do many churches seem to carry on as though God were absent with no expectation of seeing his glory no expectation of his action to change lives to answer prayer to provide for needs to make some kind of difference in the community uh, I have a friend who uh, likes to say that most Christians are practical atheists uh, a bit harsh but you know what he means and, and the church carries on very often without any sense or any expectation of the presence of God. I think it was David Watson who said that if the Holy Spirit quietly got up and crept away from the church many of us would simply not notice any difference. Look how Moses is contrasted uh, and perhaps that's a great picture of what a Christian leader should be and that is uh, just to remind you the lens through which I'm looking at this material Moses and the art of politically incorrect leadership Moses says it simply won't do to live without the presence of God he realizes that without God we are no different from anyone else anyone can run a food bank anyone can care for the homeless and many people of goodwill do but when God's presence is there there's a whole new level Chris and I recently uh, felt God speaking to us uh, during our regular morning Bible reading and we were convicted to uh, give money regularly to a food bank but both of us were agreed that whilst there were many options that we could give to we wanted deliberately to choose one which we knew would be evangelistic and prayerful as opposed merely to a secular one in the past we've been in a church which ran a food bank long before food banks became as popular as they are today and the staff there regularly testified to the miraculous multiplication of food 
as they seek to give it away to poor and vulnerable people. They started off with so many bags and by the end of the morning they knew that they had given away so many which was more than they started with. And they they worked with the presence of God and they saw miracles happen. What a thing for leaders to ask that question, where is God present in our ministry? A couple of other things about Moses. God is pleased with him. Verse 17, how many leaders know that they are living and working in that favour of God? I can remember a staff meeting in one of the churches I worked in where Uh, one of the wardens admitted that whilst he knew that God loved him, he never really felt that God liked him that much. And here we see a leader who has and who knows he has God's favour. He knows him by name. There's that intimacy of relationship, not because of some magic moment at the end of a sung worship slot, but because of that deep relationship that that pervades everything. And so God, because of that, is happy to answer Moses' prayer for the nation. And finally, Moses wants to see the glory of God. He's not just content to keep the show on the road. He really wants that privilege of seeking God's face, seeking his glory. They're high stakes, but I believe, as always, there are things here that great leaders can learn from Moses. To carry on without the presence of God is merely mediocrity.